This is Body Talk, where we explore your inner universe. Hi, everybody. David Lasondak here. Welcome back to another edition of Body Talk. And today marks a special occasion because it's the first episode of Inner Inquiries, where the experts answer your questions. Now, there's two ways that you can do questions. You can send them to bodytalkdavid at gmail.com or right there on the Anchor app. There's a little record button and you can send me voice memos with your questions and we will get the experts to weigh in on your inner inquiries. First up is Sasha Shetow. I had her on, I believe it was the seventh show of the year so far, and we mixed it up about a lot of things, but the primary focus was communication and how to improve our skills as doctors, clinicians, therapists, whatever our game is, how to improve our communication skills with our patients and clients. And I got an inquiry from a physician who writes, what responsibility does the patient have to develop their ability as a listener? Why is the focus on communication exclusively on the caregiver side? It's important for caregivers, yes, but there is very little discussion on patients improving their communication skills. So I pitched it to Sasha Shetow. She batted it back to me. Take it away, Sasha Shetow. So the first thing to establish really is whether um, this question is about caregivers in general. Uh, so that would include family members caring for loved ones with um, severe health problems, professional caregivers in um, a nursing or hospice or home setting, or whether it's actually talking about health professionals, medical professionals, um, as in doctors and allied health professionals, because um, the question uses the word caregiver, but I'm not quite sure which way um, that is tilted. So I will answer um, for both, just in case, um, because there's some interesting dimensions that might come out of it. Um, so in the podcast, I mean, we did focus um, on medical professionals, biomedical and otherwise. Um, and so I am assuming the question means that. But there's one thing to say about all three cases. So that's family caregivers, professional caregivers, and uh, medical professionals, which is that when one is dealing with people who are suffering from severe health problems um, or terminal illness, or maybe on a cocktail of medications, maybe in extreme unremitting pain, may have had some kind of health event like a stroke, that affects cognition and inhibitions, or are perhaps suffering some form of dementia, well then, to be honest, any talk of patients improving their communication um, is quite frankly absurd. Uh, in elderly people, something as simple as a UTI, a urinary tract infection, is enough to cause intense confusion and sometimes even delirium. Uh, which can even resemble psychosis. And people in that that kind of situation um, are not physically or cognitively capable of doing much more than communicating their immediate urgent needs. And 
those needs are usually overlaid with extreme distress. And I'll come back to this a little later. Um, so first of all, I'd return the question and I would say, do any of these constitute reasons not to ensure that one upholds respect and dignity for a patient in these situations? Should we talk to them as if they're somehow um, imbecilic or lesser or their feelings less important, their fears, their um, discomfort are less important because they now find themselves in this reduced kind of situation? Is it ever acceptable to treat them as if their wishes or their feelings are unimportant because their mind and their body have become ravaged by disease and they can no longer communicate effectively, whereas these people may have been consummate professionals themselves until time and illness took their toll. So can we really ask that of them in any situation? And is it ethical to do so? I'll come back to the question of ethics. So um, still in the caregiving scenario, before I move to uh, medical professionals, um, so again, interpreted in the sort of home-based or nursing home-based sense, um, we might also um, think of individuals who are cognitively intact um, and aren't in any particular urgent um, health uh, sort of situation. And they just, they may be suffering not, uh, nothing more than a collection of ailments, minor ailments that come with old age or a steady decline in capabilities. But so one might think there is no excuse for bad behavior in this case. Um, but then, you know, it's worth considering these people are often grieving in the long term because they have lost capabilities. They have lost or they are losing them. Um, they're experiencing um, a steady decline. And from a certain age onwards, they are bound to be losing people, friends, loved ones, um, to, you know, the march of time. So when people begin to lose the abilities or the reality that they once had, especially when that is accompanied by physical pain or a loss of independence, that is a very real cause for grief. Um, and we will all experience that eventually because time stops for no one. And grief, grief can cause some utterly bizarre behaviours, bizarre to the onlooker, not necessarily to the one doing the experiencing and behaving badly. And it takes some life experience to see through what can sometimes be incredibly aggressive reactions, which are in fact nothing more than an expression of fear and ultimately a form of grief. Now, I was talking to um, an elderly, compared to myself, um, friend whose brother, he was worried about when we were talking about him, his brother was in steep decline health-wise. And this friend of mine had been feeling frustrated about his brother's behaviour, saying that he was always snappy and grumpy and seemed to have no interest in helping himself or accepting assistance. Um, and essentially the man was in terminal decline and he knew it. Although it was probably going to be a matter of years rather than months. And I pointed out this element of grief to my friend, um, 
And he looked at me with such surprise. Um, and he simply hadn't looked at it that way. He was too close to the situation, too involved in it. Um, and yet understanding that essentially his brother was grieving for all that he was losing or had lost already in terms of physical capacity um, made and made him understand the aggressive behaviours, made him understand that his um, offers to help were simply making his brother feel um, uh, this loss of independence, feel angry that he needed the assistance. And then he would take that out on uh, the very person trying to do the caring, you see. Um, and this helped my friend, he said to me later, um, to change his approach towards his brother um, and become more compassionate and more tolerant of behaviours that essentially hid fear far more than any real aggression. And then obviously this allowed him to support him more effectively. And so you see, a lot of this is at play in any um, health related situation, um, whether it's um, a, as a product of old age or whether it's, it's a product of chronic disease, um, age doesn't have to come into it, but we do see that a lot as well. And so even though, of course, there are people out there who are sound of mind and yet who behave like complete, uh, well, <laughs> uh, I have to choose my words carefully here, but whose behaviours are uh, entirely unacceptable. Um, and I know there are horror stories out there. Obviously, we can't excuse all behaviours all the time. But um, it's one thing when we're talking simply about people with personality traits that, um, you know, are going to be toxic, whether or not healthcare even comes into it. Um, and it's quite another to be talking about people who are facing specific health challenges. So I don't think it's relevant to go off in the direction of people behaving badly more generally. Um, but as far as the caregiving scenario is concerned specifically, I think we need to be a lot more nuanced in how we think about patients and their needs, um, depending on the situation. And that's why we talk about this whole idea of um, individualised uh, health care. And so um then moving to the second scenario in relation to medical professionals specifically, one of the first factors that we really need to think about here is the power dynamic. Because right off the bat, you have a power imbalance. Um, when you've got a health professional whose role is very clearly laid out in law, in academic terms and in social terms, then we've got to realise that when a patient visits that professional, the power is all on one side. If I go to my doctor or my allied health provider, and I'm not a health professional myself, I have neither the knowledge nor the capacity to stand as an equal. I'm going to them because I'm trusting in their education, in their experience, and in, in their ethics, and the ancient oath that says I will do no harm. And I'm going to them because I can't help myself. Um, perhaps my health or even my life is at risk. And I'm trusting all those checks and balances that tell me that they're the person who can help me. So the first imbalance right there is that the health professional has the education, the training and the legal right to practice that I lack. And I'm being told to quote to trust them. 
and not to ask questions. What they order, I must do because they know best. Or that's how society used to see doctors anyway. And to a great extent, some communities do still view doctors and healers and carers that way. Um, you know, we could go into other dimensions, the anthropological, the sociological dimensions from a time when healing and caring um, were seen as a sacred um, a sort of, uh, 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 they had a sacred dimension because often enough only the healer stood between life and death. And we've seen enough memes going around the, uh, in the past year where medical professionals have been cheered on as heroes and heroines of the pandemic for clawing people back from the edge. All of that is true. But when I walk into a doctor's office, I don't want to be served with a dry protocol. I don't want to be talked down to as if I'm a stupid child. And I don't want my concerns, if I have them, to simply be written off um, or, or to be somehow made to feel that uh, I'm stupid for voicing them because I'm not a medical professional. I'm not going to pop pills on a doctor's say-so if I have doubts. I'm going to ask for their rationale. I'm going to ask about side effects. I'm going to ask for all my options. I may ask to see... Uh, evidence. And I'm going to ask about the real statistics. So, and if my doctor gets impatient with me or takes the high-handed approach of doctor knows best and don't argue, then I most certainly will lose trust in them because it will tell me that their ego matters more to them than my health. Now, I may in that scenario, and it's happened, this has actually happened, I may uh, just say nothing out of uh, courtesy, um, but that's the point at which I will be looking for a new doctor. So I'm really um, struggling, really, with this idea um, of whether or to what extent um, a patient has a responsibility. That word really troubles me there. Uh, do patients have a responsibility to develop their ability as a listener. That really kind of reminds me of, you know, a sort of a teacher saying, oh, uh, you know, Bobby isn't a very good uh, pupil because he never listens in class. But um, we're not talking about a child learning social skills um, and that there's a time for learning and there's a time for quiet listening and there's a time when one is learning to follow instructions and all the things that go with um, childhood socialization, how that compares, how that measures up really to um, the doctor-patient relationship, how it's even possible to think of it in those terms. Because again, we're it's one thing to say that we're talking about patients who are just obnoxious and rude and I'm sure they are out there and my sympathy really is with those healthcare providers who have to deal with that as well and certainly it's real but I don't believe that's what we're talking about here I don't know whether my sense my sense is really that we're talking about that patients should listen to what the the to the advice they're given um and be good little patients and follow it that's kind of what I'm guessing from this and I'm struggling because um, the patient has no responsibility whatsoever to follow any kind of expectation if they have come to you in pain and if they have come to you in distress and if whichever protocol 
you are following, however much evidence there is behind it, is not working, then just like the teacher whose methods work for 19 out of 20 students has to take a step back for little Bobby because little Bobby may um, have learning issues, little Bobby may be neurodivergent, um, which is a term used to refer to people on the autistic uh, spectrum and um, people with attention um, deficit disorders and so forth. Um, you know, the, a good teacher takes a step back and tries to see, to find another way to get through to that one student who isn't going to get it, um, who, who is never going to sort of unlock themselves, who's never going to understand if they go about it the standard way, whatever that standard way is. And the same precise responsibility um, and power dynamic lies with a health professional. The health professional has chosen of their free will to um, put a stake in the ground and say, here I am, I'm a healer, I've done the work, I've done the academics, I've done the training, you can trust me. Okay, and in a moment of grave vulnerability, when a st when a, and I'm, when I say grave vulnerability, I'm talking about chronic pain, I'm talking about acute pain, I'm talking about dysfunction, I'm talking about loss again of capacity and capability. Um, and I'm not, and, and I'm not even going into the emergency room scenario where some of these elements may not apply when it's in an emergency. Okay, but in all the other scenarios. Um, you know, the patient that may come through the door may not be in a position to listen precisely because of factors in their, in the whole sort of psychosocial realm of their lives. Um, and if the health professional is not clued into that, is not sensitive to that, expecting the, laying a, a, a responsibility on the patient to do the good listening, to me, it seems quite bizarre again, I'm afraid, because um, you, the educational level or the, uh, the level of um, literacy, of um, socialization, I mean, there's any number of factors at play there. Uh, so when you're saying, I'm a professional, it is the professional's task to move into the patient's world with extreme humility because you're dealing with someone who's going to have to trust you and um, who's extremely vulnerable in that position. And precisely the reason that, for example, techniques such as narrative medicine um, are now being considered ever more essential is because these are methods that can work across the social spectrum. These are methods that can cut through um, the kind of social inequalities at play when there are language barriers, education barriers, um, sociocultural barriers. Um, and when you show a patient that you are, are actually listening to them and hearing, giving their experience credence, that is when you will earn their trust and that is where they will start listening too. And it is not their responsibility to do so. It is 
um, on several levels, particularly on an ethical level, the um, onus is very firmly on the healthcare provider. And if you cannot achieve that form of therapeutic alliance, um, which is very firmly written into medical education, then I would question why a person who believes that even wants to be doing this job at all, quite honestly, um, because it is not the task of the person who is in pain um, and who is seeking assistance from somebody who says, I'm a professional and I have the answers. I could probably go on with more examples and uh, so forth, but um, I hope this provides some food for thought. The only way to really straighten out that power dynamic is to put some of that power into their hands. You can only really do that by listening to them. And they have no obligation to listen to you until you show them that you can be trusted because they're entrusting you with their health and their lives. Oh man, Sasha. Wow. Great answer. We're going to have another inner inquiry coming up on Body Talk after the break. Hey, welcome back to this episode of Inner Inquiries. And this section goes back to episode 15 with uh, my friends Liz Stewart and Chap Atwell. And we had a friend of the show and regular listener Jill Miller write in uh, asking about the group facilitation that Liz and Chap do because she had more questions about what does it look like to engage you in working with a group? What's the process? What does that look like? And just in case some listeners haven't listened to episode 15, that's your homework when you're done with this point, go back and listen to it. Why don't you just really quickly uh, just remind the listeners of what you do? You wanna start, Chap? Uh, sure. Uh, so my name is Chap Atwell. I'm a psychiatrist, a psychoanalyst, and a group therapist. And most of the time I am in private practice of uh, psychiatry, psychoanalysis and group therapy. Uh, a subset of that, which is related to the question at hand is uh, uh, that I spend a lot of time working with physicians and uh, mental health professionals in a function called the training group, which is uh, an educational group, which is highly emotional in nature, but is designed to support what we call the professional ego. So it's another way of keeping professionals in an ongoing emotionally open training format, which is not treatment. So uh, I do those two things. I do a lot of treatment and I do a lot of training. And that's, that's what I'm up to professionally when I'm not doing body language research with my colleague, Liz. Okay, and, Liz. and I'll, I'll share what I do, which is um, I'm in the structural integration community. I'm also in the group world with uh, a lot of group therapists. And I have been a teacher of structural integration, which has other names uh, like Rolfing, like Heller work, Soma, um, but it's 
Part, pardon? Anatomy trains. Anatomy trains. I was thinking KMI, ATSI, all mm. these different schools of thought. PTSDSI. <laughs> I haven't heard of that one yet. <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. So I work in, in the um, structural bodywork community, um, the work of Dr. Ida Rolf. And in there, I am a practitioner of uh, almost 30 years. But I also have attempted to pioneer what's called supervision groups in the field for teachers and for practitioners um, from studying group work. And so uh, similar to CHAP where he has uh, training groups, I run groups for teachers and for practitioners to help them understand uh, the group dynamic that goes so well with our work. Uh, with the body and how the body is a, a series of parts, but that we work with the parts as a whole system. And in teaching, you can also apply those kind of principles and group principles to working with a group of teachers to help them understand that the classroom is a group that you want to uh, grow and develop and nurture and and find ways to work with so that the group starts to help each other out in their understanding of what they are teaching and what they are from bodies and how to discover as a teacher, for example, if we're on the thread of teachers, uh, how to actually work from what they're experiencing both internally and what they are hearing and seeing and tracking in the classroom. And so the group world comes together and meets the structural integration world that way. Yeah, and, and so Liz and Chap have been doing this juicy collaboration for a while now. And uh, to get to, if you want to hear more about what that is, just go back, find episode 15 with Liz Stewart and Chap Atwell, and you can get all the details. But to get back to Jill Miller's question, how does this work in real life? How do you choose a group to work with? What's the process of working with you? And what size groups do you work with? So I think I'm gonna launch first, Chap, if that's okay. Yeah, please do. Um, mainly because Jill, I am also in probably a, a, in some ways a cousin, since we both work with, with the body and we're working with teachers. But the way I use this idea of decoding body language and group and the work that Chap and I do together on an annual basis at conferences is I've learned that over time that one of the things that's important is how I prepare myself to uh, welcome in group members. And that includes taking time to speak to someone who's interested in the group, understanding what they're what their goals, their purposes, their resistances are about it. I like to ask teachers questions, things like, what is it that you don't want to learn in this class? So that they start to think a little bit outside the box of what are the, uh, what, am I what am I supposed to be providing this teacher if they're going to be teaching another group later? So the idea is to get the teachers to actually do some internal work, but also look at how do we use certain group skills in a classroom. And so there are specific things in a bodywork classroom that could benefit a teacher 
if they were part of a group where they had their own support. And so it's, 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 um, it comes in different parts. So step one, I actually interview anyone who's interested in joining a group to make sure one, that they're a good fit, that we are a good fit together, but also that when they enter the group, they're not alone. They have had an experience with me. And often in groups, people feel isolated and, and nervous and all sorts of things come out when they're in the, in the group setting. Okay, so you're talking about putting together a group of, let's say, disparate or at least unrelated professionals who want to work together as a group to find out how to work together with their own groups. I got that right? Yes, I think the related piece is that I work with structural integration teachers, but they're mm -hmm. from different schools of thought. Right. And that's that's uh, that's quite a task. I'm going to talk to you off, off mic about that because I got a juicy project of my own. So in terms of uh, let's bring chat back in. So when you and Liz are working together, um, do you get contacted by say, hey, here's 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 this management group, or here's here's this group of Boy Scouts, or here's this group of parapatetic teachers? who do their thing all throughout the United States or maybe other parts of the world. And do you work together with groups like that? Can you work together with groups like that? Well, first of all, I would just say, David, um, I, I love the way you summarize the answer to Liz's question. That just, that really makes it so kind of plain and simple. Yes, I would say okay. that's, that, that nails it. Then the short answer of, do we offer our, Ourselves in consultation for those kinds of organizations, the short answer is no, comma, not yet. It's not okay. that we wouldn't be open to doing that kind of work. It's just that in our own evolution and building, we have uh, at least a workshop we've done on an annual basis, which is filled with people from the group therapy world who are mm -hmm. interested in this kind of interface between body language, unconscious, and group process. Yeah, and so, I should I should explain for the listener uh, how this all evolved was Liz getting involved uh, with a group of psychologists and psychotherapists and meeting Chap and then doing this interdisciplinary thing for this group of psychotherapists. Right, and and uh, just to back up a little bit because it may also help answer some of Jill's question or questions. Uh, I was thinking of the story about early in my group career where I told people, listen, I'll see anyone anytime in consultation for free one time around group. Like if they're interested in group, give me a call. Mm -hmm. Like the short story is something like, I don't have a website, I have a phone number and an email, and this is all sort of a social network word of mouth thing. That's how people engage me is by picking up the phone and letting me know they're interested. Whatever is old school and I like I am, it. I am old. He uses a phone to make phone calls. That's right, which is very useful in terms of regulating the flow. Yes. Because if someone wants to get into group, I cannot highlight enough how important it is to go slowly. And that's why this story is coming to mind, because in the early days, I had a number of people who came in and then they would not join group. And then a whole other subset came in, they would join group and then they would walk out after five groups. And so it was a hit and run for the person, for me and for the group. I 
about five years ago, implemented a technique where I told people, anyone interested, I will be glad to see you again for free if you write me a letter and you tell me in the letter what you think I need to know about your past, your present, and what you think group could help you with. Once I did that, and the, and the letter is the payment for the first session. Once Whoa. I did that, the- Quid pro quo, baby. That's the quid. And the quo is that and what I got is that after that, anyone who joined group had a 95% retention rate of staying. Yeah. Now, There's that's phenomenal. About taking the time to meet the person and for them to introduce themselves. Right. And, and, and then also, I think, to know that uh, we're taking that time. It's, it, you know, in structural work, I would say it's that beginning step we take before we dive deep. It's, it's the, the, hello, here's who I am. Are we possibly going to be a good fit? Okay, so to, to summarize, um, taking the work you do out into the wider world is still a work in process for both of you. Right, um, exactly. But, but, but you're moving in that direction. So uh, going out on a limb here for the listeners, if there's a listener who wanted to contact you about doing group work, what would be the best way to do that? And I'll be sure to include everything in the show notes too. Well, I think the, the short story is give us a call. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Get off the text, get off the email, pick up the phone, be human. Pick up the phone and call us. Yeah. All right, no, that's, that draw a line in the sand. You got to pick up the phone and call me, baby. That's, that's the first step. I love it. <laughs> but you may also, David, you may be nudging us towards as we've done mm -hmm. uh, all the sort of research and, you know, presentations at the national level, we have yet to create a weekly or every other week online group mm -hmm. around body language because online is difficult for certain sure sure what about language. like a, a two-day intensive is that something you guys oh, yeah. have in the oh. yeah okay oh yeah oh sure nice 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 oh, yeah. nice nice okay hey you know i think i i think that uh that summarizes uh the information we needed to get out there very well is there anything either of you want to add before we move on, I'm going to go with no on that. No. <laughs> hey, Liz, Chap, thank you so much for uh, being on this inaugural episode of Inner Inquiries on Body Talk. Love you guys. Can't wait to see you again soon. Take okay. care. Hey, everybody, don't touch that dial. Yeah, that's how far back I go. I remember dials. Anyway, I just want to thank all of our uh, participants today in the first episode ever of Inner Inquiries. And if you have an inner inquiry, you can send it to bodytalkdavid at gmail.com. And just a reminder, we cannot give specific uh, medical advice. So if it's about a particular uh, condition,